Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Brew and Bite show, Head in the Clouds. My name is Craig and I'm your host. Let's first up say hello to the panel. Let's say hello to Martin. How are you? Hello, good evening, Craig. Good evening all. Uh, yes, very good. Looking forward to being able to get out and about a bit more and uh, uh, not be glued to the screen like we have been for the last four and a half years, I've been like. You mean to say you're divorcing your Mac for a while? Uh, I, I, th- I think we could do with a little bit of... Um, me time rather than me and uh, me and Mac all the time so uh, yeah thank you very much and how is Alistair today I'm I'm good I'm good I, I'm, I'm looking forward to the time of uh, going out to the the high street and be able to go into shops and go to hairdressers and uh, actually sit down and have a tea and coffee rather than standing outside and uh, <laughs> freezing to death but it's all good and and Tina? I'm like Martin. I'm really excited because I've had my injection. I'm a Pfizer girl and um, I'm look- looking forward to the time when we meet people rather than just seeing them over a Zoom meeting or Teams. Yep. Nice. To finally return to face-to-face in a long wait. And today we're also joined by a very special guest. He's written over 90 books sold millions of copies worldwide, covering all aspects of Mac, as well as a tech columnist for the Mac Observer, but not forgetting his star appearance on Macworld's music band. It is Bob Levitus, a.k.a. Dr. Mac. How are you today? Oh, I'm good. I'm so much better than I was. I live in Texas, and we, we were snowed in, which doesn't happen here. Last if, if this had been last Sunday, I would. I'm happy. Has it all gone? Oh, yeah, it's all melted completely. It's 73 degrees. Oh, you can't see me out there. But <laughs> I am. Trust me. That's good to hear. Can I ask before we get into our discussion? I'm eager to find out which was Bob's first ever Mac. Oh, absolutely. It was that they had a test drive program in 1984, and it was uh, I test drove a 512, which was the second Mac they ever had. First one was a 128, and the 512, I loved it. I was so into it. I took it home for a weekend for a test drive, and then I was about to buy it, and I heard. That. I want the new one. So they announced it right after that. I got Mac Plus. But I've been a Mac user ever since. And there was never a dalliance with other other flavors. I never uh, like switched to the PC in spite or anything, even in the bad times. (laughs) That's really good to hear. I have a kind of row with a colleague who's uh, who's into his PCs. We always have this. He he slings that out. Oh, you're a fanboy. And as as I like to say and wind him up, actually, it's a badge I wear with pride. I don't take it as a derogatory term. Uh, I work for I'm quite happy to be an Apple fan boy. Like yourself, Bob, I've used both, uh, and I wouldn't go back to PC now if you if you paid me. But uh, yeah, no, I, totally agree. I call fanboy a badge of honor. Yeah, yeah. I never understand why people think it's derogatory. Boss, I know you're you're a fan. I'm also very critical of Apple when they deserve to be criticized. That, that, yeah, of course. You know, a fanboy can do that. Yes, we're al- we're allowed. Yeah, we earned the right. <laughs> yeah, I have an interesting experience that can share two things really. So I was the UK's first iPhone customer. I spent many days outside the store in Regent Street. But the interesting thing was, I don't know if any of you remember, they did a big media thing about it, and lots of other people were giving out gifts and different things. And funny enough the item that I was given was a dummy's guide to iPhone. And I wonder who it was written by. I'm pretty sure I am co-author of all of the dummies iPhone. There's a Mac one for seniors that I didn't write. So I'm thinking there might be a phone one, but the first iPhone for dummies. We're now on the 14th edition. So I, I was there. I also, you know, people don't remember this, but when power computing was making Mac clones, they didn't have a manual. 
they bought my book, System 7.5 for Dummies. And that's what was in the box when a power computing box. I was really proud of that. It's like, you know, you bought an Apple, you got nothing. You got help on screen. You bought a, a power computing. You got a nice thick book everything you needed to know and more and had a sense of humor <laughs> I've, I've got a few of your books I've yours for 8 point was it 8.5 OS 8.5 oh sure <laughs> I well I started doing it with system 7 something and maybe even system 6 and then have written an addition to each OS up each major OS update since so there's been 15 since Mac OS 10 and I can't imagine I, I just don't know how many before probably a dozen that book mm-hmm. is really tight let me tell you it's been rewritten now 20 some odd times. And every year I look it over, make the changes that I've, I've noted because I get an email from people, you know, could you have talked more about this, this part? And every year it gets a little tighter and a little better, a little, and, and after 20, 30 some revisions, it's tight. Yeah. If you don't know anything about the Mac and you want to. I think my first effort was when I joined a company, they were a Mac based out. Um, so I knew nothing about Mac. So I only used PCs before that. So I was given eight point. 8.6 for dummies to learn was it 8.1 something like that so i spent all, all of the above yeah so i spent i spent a whole weekend reading through it and going through the whole thing from a to b and of course the following week um apple brought out 9.1 so i thought great cheers for that <laughs> See, all you needed was a new book <laughs> that's right yeah <laughs> i have to ask this one as is as bob's all expertise of all things os which one feature of apple taken away that you miss the most desk accessories you know wow we really don't have a replacement for desk accessories we have stuff that goes in your menu bar but i just love the idea of installing and removing little utility programs i also miss res edit i wish we had res edit that would be really fun i used to like that you know it's like i could start an article by saying don't do this unless you understand that there could be severe consequences and you've made a complete backup first but here's how you can like those are my favorite things to we don't have a tool like that anymore that can delve into the inner in fact big sir we can't even delve into the system because it's on a volume you can't dig into really without jumping through a hoop it used to be you could customize things by changing code if you knew the secrets you know and people were always discovering new secrets so Having res edit was kind of like like uh, jailbreaking your iPhone in the early days before there were apps. It used to be a thing to do. Oh man, look, I, I changed my startups. Or changing beep sounds because you couldn't install your own for the long. I mean, I think maybe till Mac OS 10, but you could install them with res. Place all the alert tones in an app, or you could steal the alert tones from a game and put them in Mac. I remember the, the the cool thing was I had the Netscape Communicator as my email program on OS 9. And one of the cool things you could do on Netscape Communicator was you could have different tones for different actions. So when you're on dial-up, and dial-up was always crashing, it, it would go, I, I got Peter Sellers going, you dirty rotten swine, you from the goon show. And <clears throat> so you do it, and then someone would come over to use the internet because it's this newfangled thing in the late 90s. And then they would go, oh, and then they get shocked because Peter Sellers is coming out the speakers. And... And then, and then I had uh, Homer w- saying, "Woohoo, the mail is here!" Because you get like one email a week then, and so I had all these different sort of fun tu- uh, sort of tones coming out. But then we moved to OS ten, and we're only allowed one tone to change. Shame. But they did supply us with loads of other new ones, and they did re-record all of the audio sound effects, didn't they, for Big Sur? If I'm yeah. not mistaken. And the truth is, with packages, you can, if you if you can find them and they're compiled the way that they are supposed to be, 
can find those sound resources and replace them with different ones, but that's not really recommended. And then, of course, make a backup before you try that at home, and don't blame me if it <laughs> blows up your Mac. I had mine was my my uh, alert tone was I'm trying to think, but nothing's happened from the Three Stooges. And people would sit down at my Mac and do something, and whenever they got an alert tone, it's like what? Because it would usually go bong, ding, or I'm trying to think, but nothing happened. Those were the days. Oh, you know what else? Uh, uh, this isn't an Apple thing, but I miss the talking moose. We don't have a lot of stupid Mac tricks since Mac OS X. And things like the talking moose were really fun. You could leave it running on your Mac and it would just randomly put a cartoon moose on the screen and it would utter things that were pretty funny. The, the, their, their guys, their writers were decent. It was fun. And, and you could program the moose to like say things when you launched an app like, oh, using Microsoft Word again. Eh? Uh, or giving Photoshop some more love, are you? And this moose would appear on your screen and say these things. It was like watching events in the background and could respond to them. Great. We don't have toys. Nobody makes unserious fun apps. Uh, we've become too corporate, haven't we? Uh, it's interesting because the thing I can remember is from a Windows thing, but there used to be a screensaver, which was a man on a desert island. And it would come up and there were lots of different stories. Like the one I particularly liked is, you know, he spent all of his time trying to be rescued from this desert island, which was tiny. So actually he couldn't survive, but like one, he has a kit. And then while he's lying there on the island, a big cruise ship goes by, loads of people that have rescued him, speed past. He wakes up, ocean's em empty again. That always used to make me laugh. <laughs> well, do, do you remember there used to be um, Groucho who used to hide in a trash can? And you could get a little plug-in, so you could have Grouch come out your trash can, and he would put the lid. Oh, back Oscar on. the Grouch, Oscar the yeah. Grouch, and he would sing the little song from Sesame Street. He'd go, "Oh, I love trash. I love it because it's trash." <laughs> of course, what I loved about that was putting it on someone else's Mac. You know, <laughs> when they weren't around, that was fun. <laughs> and then there was one called Hot Sex, and it had this uh, girl in a bikini icon, and if you double-clicked it. It put a bomb error icon on your screen. And when you went to click OK, the OK button jumped out from under your mouse. <laughs> That's another one that was really fun to put on people's computers. You know, back when I worked in an office, people would like <laughs> yeah. never leave their desk because they were afraid of what might happen. Oh, God. If I got, if I got at their Mac. Yeah, Bob's lurking in the corner. That's it. I'm staying here. Be careful. Yeah, I, I miss stuff like that. I mean, there really isn't a lot of that. Around I bet there are a lot of HR departments, so they're quite pleased. You know what else? There aren't a lot of network games that you can play. I, I mean, I don't know, because I haven't been in a business organization with a network in a while. When, when we were working in business, we played, like, first Pathways into Darkness from Bungie, and then Myth on our local network. It's like at 5.30, 6 o'clock, you could hear everybody yelling out their doors, I'm going to kill you! I'm coming <laughs> after you with my dwarves! <laughs> you, you don't get that too much anymore I, I guess you know you can multiplayer games aren't uncommon but the ones that you play on a local area network that you know, are good and fun we always said it was team building that was how we you know explained it uh, i gotta work late tonight we're doing another team building exercise on that subject as apple have moved forward 
Apple have actually been given a hard time this week in which it's believed to up to 30,000 Macs have been exposed to a strange piece of malware called the Silver Sparrow, which was discovered by security researchers at Red Canary. I think there's a bird theme going on here. I don't know if Alistair wants to give some more insight into what this actually does. So it puts a program into launch demons on your Mac and then they haven't been exactly clear about what it does, but it's it's a malicious software which launches as soon as your computer starts, if I remember correctly. And they're waiting for Apple to resolve it before they actually explain the exact nature of it. It runs, a, it's malvertising, uh, so that's malicious advertising. And it runs JavaScript and it uses the bash protocol to install other things into the background so that it can be an installer for other malicious code. So it might be part of an APT or advanced persistent threat. So it's quite a sort of serious problem, but it'll be interesting to see what happens. But there's a brilliant definition of what it all is on Red Canary's website. The only thing is you have to understand the way Apple writes their commands and JavaScript and stuff like that. So what's the advice? How, how do you get rid of it? How do you tell? Going to Finder, go on to go, hold down the Alt key or Option key, then that will launch library. And inside library, you'll see something called launch demons and launch agents. And what you're looking for called Vex, and it's it, it sits inside your launch demons and you get a, an image appears on your screen that says, hello there. And then it says, you did it. But you can also run malware bytes and that gets rid of it. It picked up a lot of traction, but in technical terms, it never actually executed anything, did it? It was sitting dormant in the background. That's what's puzzled a lot of the researchers, I believe. They were wondering to see, it might have been a bit like what happened with solar winds. So do you remember how when they looked into solar winds, they discovered that there was two sets of vulnerabilities and it had been sitting there for a very long time. And the, it, when they first launched it, they wanted to see if anything happened and nothing did happen. And then it was the second version they released, which was the malicious payload version. And they were checking to see if anyone would spot it first time around. And that's why uh, it probably didn't do anything, just so they could see if it was working. So this might actually be part of a bigger attack. And as far as I can see, is it correct that Apple have currently plugged it, as in they've stopped downloads then they probably added it to gatekeeper because that has because um, on os 10 you have uh, antivirus which runs in the background to, to notify certain key signatures and apparently this one is called verx it stores a program and another one called playlist buddy which it does a couple of changes and tries to give itself um superior control like upgrade from stand user to administrator i also saw that they that apple have removed their security certificate so that's also made it safer for people if it pops up as an installer it will flag asking the administrator's permission before you install it i think the big news though isn't it that that it, it's targeting the new macs and the new chips so that's why it's Use. So summing up then, how much do we need to worry about this, Alistair? Checking our systems? Do we be putting on uh, malware bytes or something like that? So they said that they only affected about 30,000 computers before it got detected. So in the bigger scheme of things, that's not that many computers. If you feel that your computer is acting strange or it's got any strange behavior, probably then download a copy of malware bytes and run it. 
but the normal piece of advice would be if anything if you're on any website and it says please download flash or please download this new java or anything which you didn't go looking for don't install it because it's part of a malicious advertising attack good advice thank you look at that shall we jump onto the subject of clubhouse is in the doghouse (laughs) (laughs) so for those that of you that don't know clubhouse is a very new popular social media platform it's part radio part conference call where listeners can jump onto conversations or listen in on discussions or interviews between different people or different topics it's considered to be the new form of live podcasting and this week supposedly they've hit 80 million downloads in the App Store. It's only available on iOS. It is. So at the moment, it currently is only available for iPhone and you cannot technically use it on an iPad or iPad OS because you need a phone number that's connected. So they did a big, big interview with Bill Gates, apparently, and Bill Gates uses Android. So he was being interviewed about on Clubhouse but couldn't actually download the app to his phone. He should have had an iPhone. <laughs> That's what I can say to that. Well, he says he has one to keep an eye on developer. He prefers Android as it's more open house. And, uh, he would say he that. Can, and he can run his uh, Word. Of course, of course, he can run his Word, Excel, and all the other Microsoft products on it easier than. But he, yes, he has got an iPhone tucked away somewhere in his office, I'm sure. I'm sure he keeps an idea on the competition. I'm not so sure about the whole idea of the application. Being able to go in, and just listen to someone's private conversation. You've got three or four people having a chat about something, especially with the being able to monitor. You could be listening in and making determinations as to what people's, you know, political, religious, or cultural views are. Uh, and then where does that information go? Who looks after it and who keeps track of it? It just seems to me to be a system that's designed and based around uh, being able to be infiltrated very easily. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to use it myself. Personally. The reason why they're in the doghouse is three topics came up this week in regards to security around the app. So first of all, it was discovered that they were using unencrypted recordings of conversation spaces, which for those of you that have never used the app, involves being in separate rooms. So for those of you that are familiar with Zoom and you can go off into a particular room to discuss a topic, it works in a similar basis. And they believe that those have actually been backed up and recorded in Shanghai, which then falls under a completely different type of security restriction to UK users. The other issue was that it actually requires access to your address book, which I don't know, this seems a bit of a strange one. You may butt in on me on this one, but to be honest, any other form of social platform asks the same request. You couldn't find friends on Facebook without sharing details. And the same with Twitter. It also asks to try and pair up people that you may or may not already know. But you can say no. You can. On Facebook, yeah. I accept that I can't find certain people. Um, it's much more difficult with certain apps. So I've got WhatsApp, for instance, that has got access to my address book. In the end, it was so useful I gave in. Um, at the beginning of the uh, lockdown, when everyone was desperately looking for anything that they could talk to people on, um, I downloaded House Party, which is interesting. The quiz was funny, I'll be honest, but um, I spent ages 
setting that up so I didn't give it access to my address book and it was very aggressive in asking for my contact so um and to be fair to Facebook they do ask you but then you go no and and I think they ask you again and then they stop so the interesting thing that I thought was we've kind of gone down the social media route of first they wanted pictures of our faces with Facebook then we've gone into face ID name and addresses and now we're going on to voices I don't know if Bob has an opinion on this one I don't nobody invited me to uh, Clubhouse and I've been following the story and thinking eh I don't really I mean I haven't like thought an invitation so I could check it out because I don't need another rabbit hole social no no opinion other than that the interesting thing is as you mentioned about chasing invites I even read recently that they are being sold anything up to 80 pounds for an invite which is quite a crazy sum of money <laughs> oh and i'm sure people are selling fake ones yeah i'll give you an inv- invite send me some bitcoin i'll send you the invite and then you know the invites like click this link and it installs the sparrow virus <laughs> so has, is anybody here remember yes i have been testing it but i i i did the secure way of doing it i installed it on a separate device that had no one in the address book which was it was an interesting take and there are some workarounds of being able to install it on an iPad and on Android. May we say Android? You just need a phone number to do it with, to be honest. It is quite interesting and it is useful in being able to listen into different conversations. I wouldn't say it's private conversations. There is like a moderation board where you kind of step up onto the stage to speak. Otherwise, you are muted. But there are some very interesting conversations. They've also gone down some intriguing routes on who they originally invited to sign up, a lot of them being the tech investment community for various obvious reasons. But so far, yes, it is enjoyable. My concern is the recording aspect of it. Supposedly, you are not able to record conversations and one person was kicked off this week i believe for broadcasting the audio out but to be honest there is no real way of stopping the audio being recorded from the app that i can see i don't know if any of you have got a suggestion to that one either wasn't there also some concern that the recordings were being stored in china yeah that, so. that seems to be the major concern that the the servers are based in shanghai which uh, means anything could happen Okay, let's jump on to our main subject this evening, which is head in the clouds. And I'm sure Alistair can give us an introduction to what is cloud storage. The way I like to think of cloud storage is like a digital warehouse. Uh, so you could, it's an addition to the, the problem I think with a lot of these analogies is that people go, I'm running out of space on my computer. I'm just going to stick everything in Dropbox, not to, re- not realizing that that means you have to have the same amount of space on your computer as in Dropbox. It's an addition to. So the idea originally of cloud storage was that you could store files away from your computer so that if your house burnt down, they'll be backed up somewhere. Then we started ending up with synchronized storage in the form of Dropbox, which meant that you could have the same piece of information in two locations. So if I change it in this one folder, it will change it on the cloud. And if I share this folder with someone, then both of you get the same copy. But then we ended up with different versions of it, and it sort of taken on sort of a life of its own in a way because we now have synchronized storage and backup of storage and archive and we have interchangeable names on all of this 
and people still are slightly skeptical about what it is that they're using. Some get very confused about, well, everything is just iCloud or everything is just Dropbox and why would you want to store it there? And it's it's interesting. I see it more from a technical point of view because I've had to use both AWS, which is Amazon storage for NAS drives, as well as I have Dropbox, Google Drive, I've played with own clouds, OneDrive, iCloud, Google Photos, Smugbug, Flickr, WeTransfer, Creative Clouds, Plex, and Apple's photo sharing. So I, I've tried pretty much all of them, and I have probably about two-thirds of that group because I have to have everything to provide technical support to clients and to teachers. My next question will be is which services does each of us use? So we've heard from Alistair. So what does Tina have? It's interesting. I have a OneDrive account, a free one, and I used to use that for things like teaching using OneNote because it would sync and I could prepare at home. I never used the storage. The one I use is Dropbox. And in many ways, the reason I used Dropbox was not to back up files, even though it did back up files. I used it with my laptop to work and I changed a file. I didn't want to remember all the files that had changed. So I actually used it to synchronize. And the problem I had is the one Alistair talked about. At the time, I had a, a laptop that had 256 gigs of storage. My big laptop has got, two, you know, like one terabit but you can only store in dropbox what your smallest hard drive is so i use it for files i don't use it for photos because i've got so many photos and yet i pay for the professional so i'm really underusing it and i'm thinking about swapping to icloud because then I can share some of my storage with my husband. And you can do that with Dropbox. What I do like about Dropbox is you can share folders with other people, multiple people. My husband and I have a shared folder, but I'm really careful because effectively what you've got is two drives, hard drives overlapping. So I never put into Dropbox in the shared folder anything that isn't a duplicate because now in my luck i'll put in something that's the only copy and then the other person will delete it so you've got to be really aware of what you're doing with your files with dropbox especially if you share folders now they've got a thing where you can go back they keep versions i think for 30 days so if you screw up a file or you don't like what's happened to it and you've inadvertently saved it you can go back and get a previous version. And I've done that a couple of times and it's really saved my bacon. Well, like Alistair, because I write about this stuff, I have them all. And I have some that you didn't mention. But, but the thing is, the ones I use, you know, I, I, I have them all. And there's stuff on all of them because I've tested them at some point. I, the ones I actually use are iCloud and Dropbox. I probably at this point could get by without Dropbox. I could do what I'm doing with iCloud because I have Apple uh, One, which is this $30 a year subscription that includes two, two gigabytes of iCloud. And that's plenty for my family. There's plenty left over. We got lots. We're not, we're no, no danger of running out anytime soon. And I could probably move everything there. But my Dropbox does have a couple features iCloud doesn't. And mine's free. I have 20 gigabytes of storage for free. Because when it first came out, I made all my friends sign up on my Nick. I got all their, all their kickbacks. So 20 is pretty good. And so I, I, when I was running my business, uh, working smarter for Mac users, I used Dropbox as my public place for downloading stuff. Because, you know, if you've got a website, 
you generally need to find some place to store the files that you're going to put a link to so that people can download them. And that was an easy, cheap, free way for me. So that was one of the things I did. The other thing was that was the first way that I could have the same files on all my Apple. So like if before it was e- before there was a files app and before it was really easy to share files to your iOS devices, I would think, you know, if I'm working on a column, I'd really like that file or at least the text in it to be available on all my devices so I could pick one up and work on it for a while and then have it sync back to all the others so that whichever device I use next it has the latest version. And, and currently I'm using Ulysses for that, which is great. But in the old days, I needed Word files that I could open on all my devices. Dropbox was a great source. I do love iCloud for photo storage. You know, to, to me, that's really well integrated with all the things I do, uh, especially my iPhone, except for shared albums. I used to say it just works about all the Apple stuff until it doesn't. And, and shared folders stopped working for me in a very... At a very crucial moment, and and I'm such an Apple fanboy. The solution didn't occur to me till I spent a day troubleshooting, like literally eight hours troubleshooting it. And I thought, well, you know, Google Photos. I I put the photos I wanted to share on Google Photos. They shared perfectly with all 11 people, and I was done. So I don't know. I still am going to pay for iCloud Drive. I'm still going to pay for uh, the other one we haven't talked about yet is Backblaze. I use Backblaze for offsite backups going to get to that later so those are what i that's that's where my files are in the cloud i also had a little birdie tell me that you like doing automation and storing them in the cloud i'm i'm huge on automating backups because you know everybody knows you won't do it if it depends on you to do something it's like i have i have an alert on my calendar every month to go to the safe deposit box and get my backup discs that are down the street in the in the vault at the bank and update them and I'd say one month out of four, I actually do it. So, you know, if it relies on me to do something, it, it might or might not get done, which is why I love something that's totally automated. And, you know, all of my backups. So you got your, you got your um, time machine backups. They're totally automated. You just tell it what disk and give it enough disk space to back it all up. And it just goes. I clone nightly because for me, it's more important to get back to work immediately with my stuff than it is to be able to restore a backup and reinstall the operating system and lose four or five hours. For me, the key, if something, if things go kablooey, if I'm on deadline, is to be able to walk over to a different Mac, plug in something, and just pick up where I left off. So I clone, as well as back up to several disks using Time Machine. And then all of my photos and stuff are backed up again to iCloud. All of my music, I, I pay Apple 25 bucks a year. So all of my music is in the cloud also. And, you know, I can grab it back if I need it someday. I've got a complete set here. Got my music library is online. But even so, it's nice to have that backed up another place. I guess everything I have is backed up at least four places. So, yeah. And it's all automated. I never have to do anything or think about anything. Once it's set up, it works. And I've got most of them set up to alert me if they don't work. And in fact, in the case of my clone, I have it alert me when it successfully does it. Because if I don't see that for a couple of days, I know something went wrong. Which program do you use for cloning? Oh, I use Carbon Copy Cloner. I I used uh, SuperDuper for a long time, and there's nothing wrong with it. And in fact, if you don't want to pay, it's fine, and it'll do that for free. You can clone for free but it won't let you do all the good stuff unless you pay. So I found Carbon Copy Cloner's support for snapshots and a couple other things a little more appealing. Either one's great. Cloning is good. You know, for me, 
not being able to take, and I have a little 512 gig SSD that's my clone. It fits in my shirt pocket. I could go to the library and plug it into a PC if I had to. God forbid. But and on that note, what does Martin use? Uh, all my all my documents, my working documents, stuff I use on a day to day basis are on iCloud, broken down into various different companies I work for, my own companies. It's all it's all filed, so I can I can access it from anywhere, uh, anytime. If I'm in a client's office or a site, I can. I can get access to it quite easily. I don't use Dropbox. But, well, I say that one of my clients insists on using Dropbox for all the all the site drawings and documents, and and that that proves real problems because that is a huge file. And if I try to use the Dropbox now, it just swamp my hard drive and it just causes me massive problems. So I don't go into there unless I really, really have. To. And then a combination is that we've touched there slightly. What do you use for storage? What do you use for backup? Like Bob, I use Carbon Copy Cloner for my archive file. Um, I do a lot of video work and a lot of photography. So there's an awful lot of large files, um, especially if you're if you're doing the base file in, in Final Cut Pro, for example. It's not it's not inconceivable for that file to be almost a terabyte in size, just the uh, the library. So all of those are stored on separate drives, and I use a, a Drogba box for, for the various different cartridges. So I tend to archive a lot now. I used to try and keep everything on one drive. A couple of the methods you met there, I've got some space on one drive. I've got some space on Google Drive. So where I can, I put those because I don't need to back them up. They're there. Emergency use only, really, if the client comes back. So my main function iCloud. I trust Apple. I get I get my day-to-day work done through that wherever I am on my phone, my iPad, client's office, anywhere I want that I need to get access to the day-to-day files. As Bob said, use Carbon Copy Cloner, which is great for, for backing up your archives and keeping that separate. And like Bob said, yeah, you need, we've gone over this many times, you know, but you need more than one backup. You need more than one format. Don't be, so be careful what technology you use. If you, if you are backing up to jazz drives, zip drives, all those different ones that we had, if you are going to use that, then make sure you have a working system to actually access all the drives. We used to back up to CDs. Remember, you did CD backups each week and DVD backups each week. Who's still got a DVD? Oh, yeah. Did you, did you remember to write the number of the disc on the disc? Because if you didn't, you were in big trouble when it said, please insert disc 17. <laughs> My solution is I bought one of those docs that lets you put standard hard disks. And so all my archives are just on regular three and a half inch hard disks. I have about a dozen and they rotate out to my safe deposit box. But I have no doubt I'll be able to read this for the rest of my life because it's a standard, however many pin connector hard disks have. I think we paid over 500 pounds for a SideQuest drive, which I think I think was about 120 meg. <laughs> it was crazy. If you look back now, it's, it, it, people... I talk to people now, but you say to them, they can't believe the prices we used to pay for, you know, a memory chip was, you know, was well over several hundred pounds for, what, two meg of memory? Oh, yeah. Uh, when I bought my first Mac Plus, its price U.S. was twenty four ninety five, and it had one megabyte of RAM. I upgraded it to four, which cost $2,495. <laughs> I bought a 20 megabyte SCSI hard disk for my mac plus with four megabytes of ram and that 20 megabyte hard disk was yes 24.95 so so my little mac plus with a nine inch monochrome screen was a 7500 mac before i even paid for PageMaker and a laser <laughs> uh, 
and now you can do it. I told my wife, this is going to change our life. We're going to be able to do publishing in-house. We're going to be able to do all these things in-house. And and as I realized that, well, yes, we could do that if it just kept costing more and more and more. It was like... Does anyone remember Iamation Discs by 3M? So I... I when I got my G3, my first Mac, the only thing which at the time had the capacity was an animation disk because the G3, when you first bought it, did not come with a zip drive. That came in the second version afterwards. So the only thing I had was these animation disks. But the, by the time that the G4 had come out, animation had been taken over and gone into bankruptcy, and you can't buy for love nor money today automation drives so i've got i I was able to track one down and i was able to copy all the data off and put it onto a a zip drive that shows you how long ago today you could you'd be lucky to find something you could read the zip drive exactly so so that was the problem well after being burned all those times i decided i wanted to in the future use something that is quote standardized and so I, I bought these docks from uh, Other World Computing for like, and they're USB devices, and you just stick a raw, naked three and a half or two and a half inch hard disk, which are now commodity items. I buy four terabyte drives for a hundred bucks, and you know that's great backup thing, and I know I will be able to read these for a long time to come because it's the same connector that's in every PC and Mac for their disks. It's the same connector you would use if you put an SSD in even. The thing that you have to remember is there's something called disk rot. So it's a good idea to spin them up periodically. I said, I don't want that to happen anymore. And so for the last decade, OWC's made these docks for the longest time. And nobody, I uh, hardly anybody I know uses them, but it is the most cost-effective thing you can use for local back that, and feel confident that it's going to work like five years I think you'll find they're referred to as toaster drives. Toaster. I got a dual toaster now. It holds two slices of hard disk. Yeah, they, it's, it's got a slot like a toaster. You pop you pop the cartridges in. Uh, to me, that's a great idea because, yes, while you can buy an 8 terabyte external drive for a little bit more money, I already have four of them on my desk. It's like, I just don't have room to keep putting more. And, and at some point, I'm going to run out of slots in my hub and have to get another hub to support all the different disks, but I don't need them all online at the same time. So the toaster's the greatest thing on earth. And and they're so cheap to buy when I get something big, like new stuff for Logic, you know, it's like comes on seven DVDs. Oh, great. I can back that up to, you know, one of these disks and have lots of room left over. That's actually a really good question in terms of huge amounts of data. What would you recommend to use to share huge file sizes? You can't just send an email with a gig's worth of information. Sure you can if you're a iCloud user. Mail will offer to put it in iCloud and let you send it, them download it separately, but not you don't have to actually email the whole file and it doesn't I would do that. But you know, it has to work. Sometimes it doesn't, you know, if you've got a big file you put it on there and it just won't send. In that case I use Dropbox and I send them a link. I just say, you know, you're going to have to download this. A lot of people probably don't know that if you're on a Mac with limited storage, you can turn on something called Smart Sync with Dropbox. So you can say only have these certain files on this particular Mac, and then I can go to the cloud and look at them and then download individual ones because 
I'm sitting next to two Macs at the moment. One has limited internal space because it's a laptop, and the other one is a Mac Pro with huge internal drives. So, of course, I don't want to put <laughs> what I got on my Mac Pro <laughs> on my small Mac MacBook Pro. I've turned on Smart Sync so I can restrict it and then if i want to share files between the two of them i just use dropbox because it's a damn sight quicker than using airdrop because there's a difference in age between my mac pro and my macbook pro and they don't want to talk not to, to mention airdrop is not the most reliable protocol it's like you could be standing next to somebody where airdrop worked perfectly yesterday with the same two devices today they don't see you it's you know it's hit or miss at home, I use it all the time. I'll come back with a couple of pictures on my phone and the easy way for me to get them to my Mac. But every once in a while, it's like, what? You don't see my Mac? Come on. It's right there, right in front of you. Uh, you know, here's, here's a great piece of advice for troubleshooting. When stuff like that happens, restart everything. Restart the phone, restart the Mac, and I guarantee you, more than half the time, you'll be good to go with nothing more. You won't need any more troubleshooting. And if you forget to do that, Prepare to be embarrassed when you call your service provider for help and they say, would you please restart your Mac and your iPhone? And that fixes it. And then they go, yeah, you know, you didn't really need me. You mentioned earlier on, Bob, about uh, file transfer. I use a thing called WeTransfer. You use that? Yes, I've, I've had people send me stuff that I used WeTransfer. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty good system, especially if you want to multi-share it. Is it a paid service or is it free? There is a free service which gives you, I think, about 20 gig of transferability pro version uh, and that someone's got unlimited i think with the free version you only have seven days that once the link expires after seven days um, whereas with the uh, with the pro version the link is you can go back in any time so i can go back in get the link again uh, and then resend it out if i need to. as i said because i handle such large uh, final cut profiles quite useful at times martin are you sharing final cut edits or do you do an edit between a few of you all working on the same project uh we have done that yes well we've maybe broken the product down into it might be in four parts and and done done it that way but you need to keep a a complete draft in sync so that we can make sure that it that the pieces we're doing either are not overlapping or clashing but yeah i've been on a couple of projects where i've done a first 15 minutes or whatever we're doing or i've been doing a certain subject and that way it is very useful to throw files around uh, especially on a day-to-day view as the as bob will contest if you're if you're on a deadline it's all got to be finished for this friday it could sometimes be that someone's falling behind so we jump in and take over his section. Those big files do tend to get uh, transferred around. No, the reason I asked, one particular problem I always found was that something like a 25 gig project, it took forever to send to someone trying to edit on the fly so that you're all kept in sync. One particular one that I came across was fairly new. It's called Frame.io and it's designed for sharing video. So it's on a basic model, it's £10 a month, but you get 250 gig active storage and 500 gig archive storage. But the clever thing with this is that it's integrated into Final Cut After Effects. If you use LumaFusion on an iPad, there's Ganarbox, another backup service, and you can even sync video files with Slack and they are literally on the fly. So you can actually all be working on the same project. And it's not that expensive at £10 a month, to be honest, for that kind of capability. And I know people who use this in industry. The, um, if you if you listen to Matt Break Weekly, a guy called Alex Lindsay, he uses that for when he d- works with Salesforce 
and they use it so that they can have multiple editors and sending files and don't have problems with syncing, especially when you've got really tight deadlines. The one thing I will point out for our UK listeners is that Dropbox falls under US data protection law. Google Drive falls under Irish and British data protection law. Uh, OneDrive, I believe, falls under UK data protection law. Amazon depends on which data storage you choose, but you can go for US or American. OwnDrive is depending on the nation you're in. And the reason that is important is because if you're storing information and the company you're working with says you're not allowed to store this information outside the European Union, or one company I was doing work for said you're not allowed to store it outside the UK, because the federal authorities can access that information, you've got to be careful not to use Dropbox. My question will be in that case, in terms of once you've uploaded your personal information to these facilities or services, who owns the data? Is it you or is it the provider? And does this vary? Because I know I've come across this with photography in terms of uploading images when they're backed up on a particular service, you are kind of wavering your rights to ownership of that document. This was a big controversial thing with Instagram, I believe, to start with, as they were using images in their advertising or their marketing and not paying the photographer for the privilege of using their image. Because as far as they're concerned, is you uploaded it to their service, therefore they've got the right to use it. Well, that's clearly wrong. I wouldn't agree with that. If it, I, I can understand if you put something up on Facebook or YouTube or, that, or Instagram or, or Flickr, then you are giving the right to show that, which means then they can, can do stuff with it. But it's still your property. They shouldn't have the right to use that as they see fit. If you're not, surely you're not giving them any right to interrogate your, your file. But then they might claim that what they're doing is just using it for their service well that's it it's in the in the fine print they say that and if they do well you know not whether it's right or not they might have the right to do it nobody pays me for any of my content anyway i mean my pictures and stuff it would be a moot point unless they were used my picture in a huge advertising campaign that made them millions of dollars you ever see the episode of south park where they didn't read the shrink wrap agreement and it said that that steve jobs could sew their lips to somebody else's uh i wouldn't read the shrink wrap agreement and i wouldn't know if they said they had the right to use my stuff somewhere but if they used it somewhere and i found out about it probably be really angry uh bob you mentioned backblaze there it's not something i'm familiar with what is it something you use? Yes. Backblaze is a service. In America, it's 60 bucks a year or 6 bucks a month, and it gives you unlimited backup to the cloud. It's got a lovely little Mac client that is really almost so painless, you just basically set it up once and forget about it. It'll notify you if it's not successful in doing its backup. It's always running in the background. Every time I change a file, when it sees that I've changed the file, it goes ahead and uploads it loud. It's unlimited. So not only my startup disk, eight terabyte media disk, all get backed up to Backblaze for the same amount of money. It's it's just an amazing deal for six bucks a month. And and the thing is, not only can you download every version for the last 30 days, you know, any version that's got changes for 30 days, you can upgrade and pay a little, a couple bucks a month more to have a year. And I think a couple bucks more than that for unlimited. But the key for me is they will send you overnight a disc with all your stuff on it because I've got probably nine terabytes of stuff in the cloud. It would take me, you know, 
Well, it took two weeks to get it up there. So it would take a week or two to get it down, maybe a week. And who has a week to wait for your stuff? So they'll send you a disc and they'll give you your money back for the disc if you send the disc back when you're done restoring. And that's a good deal. That's fair. You know, it's like these guys, I think, get it. I'm sure that they make good money. They also run a a really great thing on their blog where they tell you about the failure rate of all the different models of drives that they've bought. And they have tons. I mean, they're like running 20 or 30,000 drives. So being able to look and say, oh, gee, that Western digital six terabyte model has a high fail rate. Well, now I know not to buy those for my toaster, right? If you're going to buy a hard disk, you might want to look because they really, really, really keep track and they try to buy a variety and they buy so many, their their data is pretty reliable. So if you see anything that they've got that, you know, they've got a good number of and they're having a higher than average failure. Also, the other way, I mean, if you're one of these people that wants to buy the most reliable disc, that's a good place to look because the MTBF that they stamp on discs means nothing. That's, my, that's been my experience. These guys are real world. They're paying for these discs and they're reporting back, you know, what their failure rates were. And I think they're using enough discs that you can rely on it to be fairly, fairly accurate and a small uh, margin of error. You know, if you're looking at 20 or 30,000 of the same model, that's projectable to, you know, one or 2% error rate. It is like if they say 13% of those fail in the first year, that's probably about right. I used to work in statistics. And yes, you can manipulate statistics to say whatever you want. But in this case, they're, they're very transparent about it. You can download the spreadsheet with all the raw data in it. But I, I tend to look at that before I go buy a, a four or eight terabyte disk to stick in my toaster, just to make sure I don't buy the one that's failing earlier for them in big quantities. So I love them. I just wrote a column about them. This is about the ninth year that I've sent them money. And I hate subscription. I'm not a big fan of sending anybody money every month for something. But in this case, I I find it really a good value. Five bucks a month is one coffee or one beer. Does it back up your iCloud uh, details, Bob? It depends on whether you've got it set. But if the stuff is stored locally, whatever is on your local disk will be uploaded. It doesn't upload your apps, though. You can can make it do that if you you wanted to, but I see no reason to. any of you tried having a remote machine in the cloud? So example being a popular one for Mac users is Mac Stadium. They provide virtual machines in the cloud. Any of you have tried that? No, I've got no, I've never used that personally. I've, I've heard of it, but again, it's not something I've had. I have actually used Mac Stadium in the past. I had a Mac mini based in the US for a while. It is a really good idea. If you're doing that kind of hefty work, the one thing I would say is it's super expensive and it's got far, far more expensive than it ever has. It used to be about £30 a month then. And now I'm talking about five or six years ago. So I imagine it's a lot more now. It's always a scary one in terms of looking at a monthly bill. Is it volume based? Do you get billed based on like, you know, how much bandwidth you use or how much storage you're using? So you don't know until you see the bill? No, that's a good question. And they did an offer, I think, once where you can actually request external drives to be attached to your machine, or you can ship in a Mac of your own to have in their servers, which is quite an interesting one. I'd like to know what it's like if it goes wrong and they just ship you back the broken machine. How long is your thing offline then? (laughs) I don't think their tech support reaches that far. The other question I had is if you would sync between different cloud services, or if you've ever tried doing that. So you might have a backup that goes to 
iCloud, but then it clones it to Google Drive. Don't know if you've tried that because that gives you the best of both worlds in terms of their facilities or their access. Uh, we used a product called Retrospect uh, for doing commercial backups. The company I was working for, they used Retrospect. They had three different main servers of the different types of documents they had. And we set up a Retrospect schedule so that at, I think it was 11 p.m., 2 a.m. and 5 a.m., it would do backups of the servers. And that was uh, to one to keep it separate. They want some was client work, uh, some was disabled to do with accounts or stuff like that, which they wanted kept from the general staff. Uh, there was only a limited number of staff who had access to those files. So they kept them all separate and they used Retrospect, which was a pretty good product. It, it, it enabled that to, to run sweetly in that the, everything was kept separate and safe uh, and the backups were all uh, in place. And I think the, the other thing about that that I will say is that you must check your backups actually work. Yes. There's no good finding out. Thank you. The day that your system has crashed or the building's caught fire or some tea leaf has had it away with your, your kit to find out that, oh, you can't actually access your backup or the file is corrupted or um, you haven't paid your last bill, so we haven't actually done your backup for the last year or whatever. You need to routinely do a disaster scenario, go through the process, You've walked into the office, your machine has gone. What do you do? How long does it take to get everything up and running? So you build that into your process. Um, too many times I've found that people have done what they thought was backups and they thought they were all safe, only to find out something silly, a, a, a link through the internet, uh, a payment, a standard payment on the bank DD hasn't gone through. And then they find that, oh, sorry, we actually didn't think you want to continue our service. So we've wiped away all your last 10 years of data. Thank you very much. So please do a disaster scenario test every, I'd say every quarter or something like that, just to make sure that you are going to be able to recover from you know, a data disaster. And also, whatever you're using for all this backup stuff, test it every once in a while by restoring a file or two. You know, I always say that when I talk about backups is the worst problem you could have is when you think you're being backed up and you got that good secure feeling and then you go to get a file and it says you haven't been backed up in two weeks. You need to make sure you can get the file you need out of that archive. So even if you're using Time Machine and there's files in there, make sure they work. You know, Not just look and see, but download it to your computer and open the file. Uh, and I guarantee it'll be the boss that will come and say, oh, by the way, Martin, I've lost this file. Could you get it back? And it's the one file that won't actually recover. I've got everything... The 10 files before he worked on, there the 10 files after, and the one that he manages to lose is the one, for some reason, hasn't got a backup. Then you're trying to explain away to the boss what's happened. Other thing I would recommend, choose a standardized filing system and get someone else to check it to see it makes sense. Because what makes sense now will probably not make sense to you in nine months' time when you're panicking because you've called it beat shot, but... When you go looking for it, you spell, you know, beach movie or, or, or subtle difference. And beach can be spelt two ways. And there's subtleties of that. The other mad one I've come across is people back up files and then they put their backup server somewhere really warm. And then what happens is the thing overheats because it's got no air, it doesn't get enough air or it's overheated. And so when the hard drive dies, 
the backups died and I've had to break open the case and do data recovery on drives. And it took me six months to get the data back because it had got cross-formatted as Windows, as, but it was a Mac drive. And that is a nightmare at times to try and recover stuff. Always test it. It's really interesting because in many respects for all of us, the data is more valuable than the machine. Do any of you use cloud or anything else other than backup or access to a, a remote copy? When I'm sharing files, especially when I'm teaching, I will often use Google Drive because it goes across all platforms. So I have to assume that the person doesn't have access to a Mac or PC, and they may be on an Android phone or an iPhone, and I'll write them their homework in Google Docs. Interesting thing is, is that I write things and then I'll share it, and then there'll be two of us writing on the document at the same time. And I find that is excellent. And that's us a Google Doc, which we are sharing information on. I find that brilliant, especially because it can sort of shrink down to an iPhone, then scale up to an iPad, then scale up to a MacBook Pro. Then it can go to someone who's working on Windows and it comes back to me and it all looks identical and there's no problems at all with that. And I find that is excellent. And I also found when I was traveling abroad, when I was in Japan, I could send photos to Google Photos and then send someone the link for the photos I'd taken both off my iPhone and my Android phone. And it, they could both see it at the same time in their time zone, which was 12 hours behind of what I was doing that day. So they could sort of experience what I was doing in a sort of slightly different way. It wasn't like backup. It was just like, go and have a look what I've just done. So even if my phone had got destroyed, I still had a secondary copy of it. So I think that was quite useful versions of it. It's just interesting, though, because you've made me think about one of my ex-colleagues many years ago who um, had his camera stolen. They broke into his house and stole his camera. And there was a big appeal because actually this bloke had never backed up his photo. The last thing you need when you've had a disaster is someone saying that was a bad idea because they've already learned it's a bad idea and they're in the middle of their trauma. In my head, I was going, why did you do that? One other suggestion in regards to cloud is controlling things remotely. So I've recently figured out a little way of downloading big files when I'm out and about and I don't want it to go to my iPhone or my iPad. And you can tell your Mac at home to download the file. And it's by having a file set up on Dropbox or various other things that's a watcher folder. So when you add a link into the folder, it then syncs in the cloud to tell your Mac at home to download the file, which is quite of a useful one. Because I know that I mentioned before, I'm a fan of Zapier. I used that a lot for different things. So I think this is something you should put some more information of in the show notes for other people to go and play. I think we've come to the point in our show for another week. First up, we shall say thank you very much to Tina. Thank you once again. We'll see you soon. Night all. Hope you... Um... Okay, um, I'm going to say goodnight as well. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bob. It's very nice uh, chatting. Thank you, Martin. And we'll say goodnight to Alistair. Thank you very much your insight yet again oh, it's been fun it's it's a, a subject i've been wanting to talk about i'm gonna say thank you very much to our guest and his wonderful collection of macs that i wish we could show to our listeners <laughs> hidden behind him over there <laughs> well thanks so much for having me this was a pleasure like i said earlier in the pre-show i love podcasting i just don't want to have one of my own so have me anytime you guys know my phone number you know where to find really me appreciate that. <laughs> it was great thanks Thanks for having me.